Welcome to the Word on Worldviews podcast. In our previous episode, we discussed a method of how to study the Bible using a step-by-step process. Kurt, I trust you are doing well? Hi, Monet. I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, good to be doing the podcast again with you. How are you doing? Oh, we are doing well. In the campus in the morning and other th- busy with family in the afternoons. Um, now, to get you, before we get to today's topic, I want to ask, can you just give us a quick recap of the previous episode? Sure. All right. So in the previous episode, we went through some basic steps for Bible interpretation. So in a nutshell, observation, interpretation and application, we then unpacked important aspects of each of those. Now, in today's episode, we will go through a timeline of popular methods of interpretation uh, through the ages. And uh, credit goes to Agathon Edu and their platform Versity TV for this study, for teaching me the timeline uh, of the process of how people develop their hermeneutics, what was popular in certain ages. And uh, before I get there, I'd like to read a few scriptures. First of all, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Paul writes to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that word dividing can also be translated uh, handling, rightly handling the word of truth. The next scripture is Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which reads, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely, uh, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, in one sentence, uh, why I read these verses, it's because correct interpretation is required and also God's word is sufficient for all mankind. So now we are going to get into the different interpretations of history. And uh, what we've covered in the last two episodes is the literal grammatical historical method. So from about... Uh, according to biblical dates, around 4000 BC to 90 AD. So if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, I recommend that you go and listen to those to get some more background information and just to to help you along uh, in the study so far. So for the first few thousand years of history, this is how people, including our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, interpreted God's word. That is literal, or what does the text mean in a normative sense? We're not looking for hidden or other meanings to it. Then we have grammatical, or following the rules of language. Lastly, historical, or what was the meaning to the original audience? And the key here is the author's intent, or what did the author say and mean in his communication to the original audience. But now, things started to change in the first century. 
So into the first century, we uh, find the allegorical method. Now, a Jewish philosopher by the name of Philo, who was born in 20 BC and died in 50 AD, uh, was educated in Judaism and Greek philosophy. So he used Greek thought to influence the interpretation of the Hebrew scripture. So what does allegorism mean then? Well, it means to look for a deeper meaning in the text. And this is also called spiritualizing. So in this, a literal meaning to the text is not thrown away, but it is insisted that there is also a symbolic meaning to the text that must be found. For example, and I die inside every time I hear this, that the Song of Solomon, which is a Bible book about love and marriage, and of course in the physical relationship of the husband and wife, uh, this is taken as a symbolic, uh, it's, it's, it's a symbolic of Christ's love for the church. I'm, I'm cringing. <laughs> Though this is a, a, a poetical book, it is literally about love, marriage, and problems in marriage. This is an example of the uh, allegorical method. Uh, before I get any further, I just want to say as well that we're not going to give examples for each uh, method that we go through. But we do hope, though, that it uh, will be a good starting point for you to do further research. Okay, continuing then. Next, we've got threefold allegorism from the period between 185 and 254 AD. And this was introduced by a man called Origen of Alexandria. So in this, you would have the bare letter or the literal interpretation. You would have the soulish interpretation and then the allegorical, which involves the use of a metaphor to reinterpret the text. Yeah, so Origen is the origin of threefold allegorism. <laughs> I've... I've always associated him and others from the school of Alexandria with an allegorical approach from the little I've read about this. Can I just ask something? Are you a dad by any chance? <laughs> I am indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every, everyone can tell. <laughs> Continuing then. After that, we have what's called Augustan dualism from between the years 354 to 430 AD. Now, this is a system of interpretation according to the system of philosophy developed by the famous Greek philosopher Plato. So, non-prophetic scripture must be taken literally, and then prophetic scripture must be interpreted allegorically. And again, we have an ancient North African guy who can't stick to a literal approach. I'm seeing a pattern here. Yeah, very good observation. Moving on from there, then, we have between the 400s to 1500s AD, we have the fourfold hermeneutic. We have the literal interpretation. We have moral, so determining your conduct, uh, spiritual and anagogical. So this is basically the established church telling you how to think 
and interpret the scripture. And at this time, it was the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, it's so funny how rejecting the messenger's intent uh, can be made to sound so clever and scholarly, and that there's really nothing new under the sun. You can dress it up, but it's still the same rejection of just taking the text for what it is. Uh, another very good uh, observation. Uh, it does sound very scholar scholarly and clever. And yes, as Solomon did say, there is nothing new under the sun. People are always uh, dist distorting God's word. But now, after this, we have a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. We have a brief return to literalism in the 1500s AD. Now, some of you may have picked this up by now. This, of course, has to do with the Protestant Reformation and involving the man responsible for accelerating it. And that, of course, would be that uh, monk named Martin Luther. So at this time, uh, a study of original language, there was the study of the original languages instead of Latin translations of the Bible. There was a comparison of scripture to uh, against the teaching of the established church at the time, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, uh, this was not an attempt to leave or destroy the Roman Catholic Church, but it was an attempt to reform it. And that is why, instead of sending my children to go trick-or-treating on October 31st, I'm going to send them to nail pieces of paper to their neighbor's doors. <laughs> yes, for those of you who don't know, this is what Martin Luther did. He wrote uh, 95 theses against the Roman Catholic Church and the, the sale of uh, indulgences. <laughs> Very good. I'd love to see that and your neighbor's reaction. Yeah, and uh, again, to clarify, I don't know whether it comes through that clearly. October 31st also happens to be the day uh, when Martin Luther nailed those um, theses to the um, Wittenberg Church door. Um, and it also happens to be Halloween, so... <laughs> Correct. Okay, so that was the brief return to literalism. Now we have a return to the dualistic interpretation of Augustine, and that's in the 1500s to 1800s. Now, why on earth go back, you might be asking? Well, this is because Luther and the Reformers only partly restored biblical teaching. Now, if you look at this uh, era, religion and politics in Europe were so closely intertwined during the Reformation uh, that it caused massive upheaval, violence and death as well. It was a very violent period during uh, Europe's history. There was also a man by the name of uh, Spinoza whose uh, critical analysis of the scripture uh, had some influence on this uh, and, and uh, drawing conclusions. So uh, the reformers would say uh, the moral side of it is, is liable, so scripture determining your conduct, but prophetic teaching and some historical teachings are not uh, reliable if interpreted literally. So the progress then of the Reformation was halted and it was frozen. What they had was frozen into creeds and confessions of faith. 
So uh, in the present, there are some institutions that will not allow you to question these creeds and confessions, even though they are written by man. Now, an example of this is in R.C. Sproul's booklet. And R.C. Sproul, uh, who's now uh, deceased, was a, a Presbyterian and a, a well-known theologian. Uh, he has a booklet called Does God Control Everything? Now, on page 33, to prove a point to the students of the seminary, uh, to, to prove a point of his theology, he actually doesn't start with the Bible, but rather with the Westminster Confession of, of Faith. And I read this and I thought, why are you starting with this and not the Bible? So it's not based, uh, what he was saying to them was not based on an objective process, but rather assumptions. So my document is biblical and therefore correct, instead of filtering that document through the Bible. Uh, next, then, on our timeline, we come to the 1800s to 1900s. And here we see the rise of fundamentalism, the theology of dispensationalism, and uh, which is ultimately based on a return to literalism. Literalism. So, fundamentalism is a belief in the fundamentals or the core of the Christian faith. Now, they never went anywhere. They were just rediscovered for how important they are. So, for example, that would be such doctrines as inerrancy or that the Bible is uh, inspired of God and is without error in all its parts. It would also be such things as the virgin birth, the reality of Jesus' miracles, uh, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that he died in place of all men. He died for all men. Then there would be the reality of the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And then, yes, a notable difference from what we saw previously on the timeline, interpreting prophecy literally. Now, you would hear this from such men as John Nelson Darby, T.I. Schofield, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who is the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, Charles Ryrie, R.B. Thiem Jr. and third, uh, Robert Dean and Christopher Cohn, just to name a few who are associated with literalism. And yes, this is what I associate with as well. This is my theology from a literal interpretation of scripture and yeah. it's commonly called dispensationalism mine too just to be clear yes I, i'm glad <laughs> that you agree and that we're both in agreement um, so in this era the text was examined and previous interpreters were questioned there were many conferences held like specifically on prophecy for example uh, and there were many schools or seminaries that were teaching these fundamentals, teaching a literal interpretation of Scripture. And as a result, you had a culture with a solid world view. But then the counter movement arose. We now get to the 2000s or a Christocentric gospel centered 
redemptive movement, uh, falling into the globalist narrative. And I'll just uh, make a, another comparison here. For, so for dispensationalism, that would be uh, my, my movement and Monet's movement, is focused on God's glory. It's, or, or it's doxological, focused on God's glory. Uh, Christocentric is uh, filtering all of Scripture through um, redemption, or everything has to do with uh, Christ's death on the cross. But we would say that Christ's death on the cross is a means of bringing glory to God, but it is not the only, it's, it's not the framework for interpreting the entire Bible. So then, when we get into the 2000s, we find a more earthly focus in the church. So there's such focus on things as social justice, trying to right the wrongs of the past. And there is also uh, not really so much a focus on the future. So eschatology, things to come, last things, study of the last things. Yeah, that's very interesting because this earthly focus is something that I associate with the theologically liberal side. Yes. Um, and it seems, unfortunately, um, some of these concepts, um, like the worldly social justice approach, are seemingly infiltrated evangelicalism. Correct. And things like globalism come to mind, where churches involved in this um, become more concerned with temporal matters and solving the world's physical problems than the gospel itself. So there's a misplacement of priority. Uh, yes, very much so. For example, uh, on eschatology, I think a good example here is following a quote by Mark Dever of Nine Marks, where uh, he says, um, you are in sin, if you lead your congregation to have a statement of faith that requires a particular millennial view. Wow, that, that's awful. I, it's as if the, the full counsel of God does not matter to him. And like future events are just some sort of nebulous blob of uncertainty, which we can only know for sure when... It all happens. So as if the Bible does not have anything clear to say on future events, end time events. Shocks. That's that's awful. Yeah, it's it's definitely. Um, I I don't really understand his motivation. I don't know whether this. I, I've read this quote, but um, I have not, and I've heard it mentioned by other people. I don't know whether it comes from. Uh, a sermon or something that he just was writing. Um, I don't know whether you know, Kurt. I'm not clear on, on that at the moment, but it w it won't be the first time that I... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's definitely... You can find this quote. Uh, that uh, There's an article on the Gospel Coalition's website, actually, that discusses this. Um, yeah. Uh, not in the way we are discussing it, though. And, uh, yeah, it's just... I wouldn't understand, because there are definitely other areas, considering Mark Dev is of nine marks, there are nine marks that are quite important to him, of a healthy yeah. church, and, uh, well, like, if those things can, uh, because I assume it comes from this idea that since millennial views can be divisive, this divi division thing becomes sinful. 
if you have a particular millennial view. But his position is a divisive one in itself. So again, it's also a self-refuting approach. Uh, we shouldn't be ashamed about where we stand on future events. Yeah, absolutely not. Uh, there should be nothing in our views that we should be ashamed of. We should be able to discuss them openly in our churches. And uh, uh, I haven't heard of a church that where a member has some questions or maybe some disagreements about if the church's eschatology is being put under discipline. It's just that this is what this church teaches and yeah. what would be expected there. And yes, I just want to say thanks. Good. This timeline has really been helpful to create a better understanding in the origins of some of these hermeneutic approaches throughout history. It really clarifies a few things. Yes, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping as well that this answers a lot of questions for the audience. Like, can you see why there are so many, or why there, there are dozens of different denominations and even cult groups around? Uh, it's, it's because of following different methods of interpretation. Now, also uh, extending from there, there are some other incorrect methods that have been used throughout history as well and sometimes we use these unconsciously and uh, or, yeah just because we've been so indoctrinated into it it's what we we've always heard so uh, for example well, these will these will fit in at, at places in what we just looked at uh, theological for example so this is where we bring our theology which is what we believe about god already to the text instead of getting our theology or what we believe about God from the text. So, for example, reading the text through your church's catechism or confession, you immediately default to those documents for your interpretation and another interpretation doesn't uh, sit well with you. Uh, next would be spiritualization. And this is actually very similar to allegorization uh, in that it, it looks for a deeper uh, hidden meaning. Uh, sorry, uh, allegorism looks for a deeper hidden meaning, but spiritualization looks for individual subjective understanding or how you personally perceive something to be. Uh, another one would be complementary, and that means uh, reading the the New Testament back into the Old Testament, or, or using the New Testament to complement the Old Testament by improving upon, expanding on, or, or even changing the meaning of the Old Testament. Uh, another one would be canonical. So that's where the Roman Catholic Church has ruled what the meaning of a text is and one may not interpret outside of their canon. Uh, last example would be genre override. And that is rejecting the literal... Or, okay, sorry, that would be uh, rejecting the genre of a book for whatever reason uh, you have. Uh, for example, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you would say that is poetic rather than historical narrative because you can't agree with a literal reading of those chapters on creation. 
So it doesn't sound scientific to you. God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. So that has to be poetry then. Ah, okay, I can associate with intellectual circles without sounding stupid. Uh, another example would be revelation is not prophecy or foretelling of what is to come, but it is rather apocalyptic and therefore you cannot interpret it literally. So you just put, put it in that little box and it's something you can't really figure out. So it stays there and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, and all of these, well, some of them at least, especially say that spiritualization and theological is someone where even well-meaning people uh we you do that inadvertently um you definitely can quickly step and make can, like you have this theological idea and then you read the text and you have come with that baggage to the text and you read that yeah. into the text definitely something we need to be aware of and avoid of course now um as always when we conclude our episodes, we end it with the cringe meter And for this week's cringe meter we are going to discuss a quote. And this quote is actually a title of an article written by uh, an author named Kevin DeYoung. Uh, he's also a Presbyterian pastor, if I am correct. Uh, and it ties in well with today's topic. And the title, go, the title goes as follows. Your theological system should tell you how to exegete. Oh, good grief. Yeah. Well, this is, this is deceptively cringy because people will respect him for his uh, renowned career and also the scholarly sound that this, this has to it. This, to me, this is cringy because it, it plays off people's biblical illiteracy and tendency to hero worship because it is kevin de young he has preached and taught for this long and written this many books and has uh, helped me throughout my walk with god uh he must be correct and i've seen this many times with people and it bothers me intensely but good he, he writes for the gospel coalition This world can only be cleansed in fire. <laughs> Disappointed in you. <laughs> in all seriousness, no, seriousness though, uh, there is a good counter that I can recommend uh, to this article uh, by Dr. Christopher Conan, uh, appropriately titled, Our Theological System Should Not Tell Us How to Exegete the Bible, which mm, offers... Amen. Yeah, and this offers a good counter-argument to this while analyzing the original written piece. Now, I encourage our listeners to read the Young's article to understand what he's saying, to get a good understanding of his perspective and the areas that he um, talks about, considering that he comes from a confessional reformed background. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and there are, so there are parts that when you are from that background, when you read the scripture as it is, that and things don't line up with your... Um, with something like the the Canons of Dort or Westminster Confession, etc., there are some uh, going to be some problems that you have to resolve. And often, what Reformed people may do then is 
read scripture in the lens of uh, some assumptions that reformed theology sort of establishes yes and uh yeah so i recommend reading the original article and also looking at this uh definitely this response by dr christopher cohen which is very thorough it is very objective in his writing i could i i recommend his writing in general he's very uh objective and very fair to wh whatever he deals with um, he right. doesn't call people names he doesn't disparage uh people he attacks the subject and he does so very thoroughly uh, yes. That is my experience with his writing, and um, that is why, as you may have heard, we are we are big fans of his writing for that reason. He has encouraged us and built us up to be through his writing to be very biblical in our approach. And uh, we will also link, uh, and we can also do. You think that we can link to our Facebook page that um, article? Oh, uh, that's a great idea. We Dr. should put Kirk. it there, and everyone can find it easily. Yeah, that Dr. Cohn one. That's the one that I want to link to our page. And, you know, there's this, uh, he, Dr. Christopher Cohn appropriately uses a picture of a dog chasing his own tail uh, with that article. Yes. It's, it's definitely appropriate. <laughs> oh, well, what I really appreciated about that article was his insistence on our theology being based on exegesis of scripture you do not bring your theology to the text you get your theology as a conclusion from the text and that's my uh, big takeaway from the article yes that was mine as well so um Kurt uh, what's in store for us for the next topic we've really gone through the topic of hermeneutics now from one point to another and uh What's in store next next time? Oh, you're going to love this. The next episode, uh, I'd like to say it's sort of an ode to the cringeometer. We're going to be looking at bad theology, bad theology quotes, and conspiracy theories, and cor then correct them with biblical doctrinal teaching. That sounds like a lot of fun. We're going to probably step on a few toes if you're a, a Facebook auntie, for example. But we want to assure you that we love you and that uh, you have a biblical understanding of uh, what it is you're looking into. Yeah, that is our goal. You know, we, we don't want simply to uh, definitely we never want to disparage people. That is not our yes. goal. Uh, we don't want to attack the person. We want to attack the topic. And uh, yes. and you know, it's in. If you care about someone, you you offer at least advice or corrective where appropriate. And we think um, if something is our approach is if something is said publicly, it's fair game to address and uh, discuss yes. discuss publicly. So um, yeah, that sounds like a very very fun thing to do um we like to have a little bit of fun with the cringe meter today's cringe meter wasn't was more serious it wasn't yes. uh, too humorous uh, but definitely appropriate for the topic at hand of course and uh yeah uh, just to to you know emphasize this um your theological system should not tell you how to exegete <laughs> absolutely Amen. not uh, because that is that actually has a name. It's called eisegesis, not exegesis. Yes. 
um, your your theology should always be a conclusion. Um, if it's not, then where is its origin? Where is that theology's origin if it's not from Scripture, if it's not from God's revelation itself? And uh, we aren't Roman Catholics. We don't believe we are, we are supposed to be, you know, and, you know, Kevin de Young claims to be a Protestant, uh, supposed to hold to sola scriptura, the idea that scripture alone has authority as yeah. God's revelation. So um, this should definitely give you pause. And yeah, we encourage our listeners to look at these written pieces and uh, do a bit of thinking on for this for themselves and, you know, do a bit of reading and uh, let scripture drive your conclusions, not the other way around. Yes. Well then, uh, Kurt, uh, this has been a fun episode and a really uh, fun series on hermeneutics to really get this podcast going and to give our audience an idea of where we are coming from. Um, yes, I've enjoyed it immensely and uh, I invite our listeners to uh, continue the journey with us, continue learning, uh, being edified from God's word and uh, also if you like what you've been hearing uh, we would encourage you to share it with others so that they be edified as well you can follow us on the various major podcast platforms uh, you can also follow our facebook page uh, we share our uh, the the links to the podcasts there we also share some memes from time to time to give you a bit of a laugh and uh, yes so this is uh, for the glory of God and for your, uh, yes, upbuilding up on your most holy faith along the way. And for those outside of the faith, just getting a, a better look into what we believe. Yes, thanks, Kurt. Um, I hope you enjoy your evening. All the best and until next time. Thank you very much and to you as well. Until next time, everyone. Uh, before I sign off, I also just want to mention that our opening and closing music track is Nowhere Land by Kevin McLeod.